Amen. It's a beautiful song. And notice that it says that the new wine comes out of what? Out of being crushed. Right? So there is crushing that happens in life. There's just a lot of things that are unpredictable that happen to us throughout the course of our lives. And so in that crushing, God can take something that is painful and make something new and beautiful out of it. And so that's a really going to be a part of the theme of my new series, Transformed, how God takes the painful things in life and brings new wine out of it. So uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're almost done with this series. Next Sunday morning, we'll conclude this series out of Ecclesiastes. Um, today, I want to talk about words of wisdom. Uh, Solomon, once again, in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, begins a comparison between those who are foolish and those who are, who are wise. So I've given you on the top of your outline kind of the definition, a wise person is someone who understands that, you know, we're just a small thing here in this world. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of our own little world. But there's something much grander and bigger outside of us who is God, and we're a part of his plan and his purpose. And we were pursued by God through Christ by the Holy Spirit, and when we enter into that relationship, we submit to our Father, and then we embrace uh, His will and His purposes for and plan for our, our lives. And so we, we, um, we walk in obedience as best that we can in conjunction with the Spirit of God who now indwells us. On the other hand, the foolish person is someone who thinks they're indestructible, who stands at the center of the universe. The world's all about me. It's all about me, my, I, and and everything is, is relevant to me, who does not submit to uh, the pursuit of God, nor to the will or the way or the purposes of God, but rather they walk in disobedience rather than obedience. So Solomon has been contrasting between the wise and the foolish all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And so this is, again, uh, what he did previously in chapter 8. He just kind of takes some some things and says, okay, let's make a contrast between the two of these. So rather than just looking at the contrast back and forth, I thought, well, let's, let's uh, thread a theme through the chapter that will help us grasp something that we deal with day in and day out. And so that's why um, I'm going to be talking about being both wise and foolish when you are making decisions in life. Every single day of our lives, we are making decisions. Some of those decisions may seem very small and very insignificant. You got up this morning, you thought, well, what am I going to wear to church today? And, and uh, what am I eating for breakfast? And, you know, which direction, you know, pathway am I going to take to go to church? Am I going to go a different way to just kind of change things up? So those are small decisions that we make every day of our lives. But, the, you know, small decisions do not discount them because they have cumulative value. Small decisions that are made every day of your life begins to develop certain um, habits and patterns in your life that ultimately will become a lifestyle. So do not discount them, but certainly they're, they're not as, um, you know, earth-shaking to us as those that are major decisions. So what are some of the major decisions you've made in life? Well, one of them is like, uh, if you went to college, where am I going to go to college? Or where, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to work? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? There are all kinds of major decisions about purchases that we make all the time and relationship decisions throughout the course of our lifetime. But regardless of the decision, every single decision that you make sets your feet on a path that leads to a destination. And you've heard me talk about this many, many times before. What is Pastor Greg's favorite passage in all the Bible? So when I die, and I will someday, and somebody asks you that, don't say, well, I'm not sure. Here it is, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge God, and he will make your paths straight. In other words, God desires in every decision to put your feet on the best path that leads to the best destination nation. Amen? Amen? All right. We're tracking together then. So as you look over your life and where you are today, it is based on the decisions that you made yesterday. And where you're going to be in the future is going to be based on the decisions that you're making in the here and now. So every day we make decisions. Some may seem more important than others, but needless to say, every decision determines both the direction and the quality of my life, both the direction and quality. 
We are all made, have all made some good decisions. We have all made some bad decisions. And some of our greatest regrets in life have be, you know, are on the basis of some very unwise, bad decisions that we've, we have made. Most of us don't learn from our bad decisions, and here's why. Because we are convinced that all of our bad decisions are somebody else's fault. <laughs> it's amazing. We, we, we blame everybody and anything on the bad decision we made that led to the greatest regret in our life or any regret, but we don't want to take responsibility for it. Therefore, we, we find a way to blame somebody else for our bad decisions. So the question is, how can I make better decisions that will lead to fewer regrets in my life? When I get to the end of my life and I look back over my life and I can look from this point on back over my life and I can see some very bad decisions I've made and regretful decisions I've made and I see very good decisions from here on out, how do I want to track that? Because remember, this series is about living life backwards. We know that the end game is we're going to die and after we die, we're, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to enter into heaven, you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to give an account for what I've done with everything God has given me. So if I track backwards, I want to, I want to know how can I maneuver through the fog in making wise decisions that are going to set my feet on the best path to the best destination so that I live with fewer regrets at the end of my life because I've chosen to live wisely. And this is the essence of what Solomon is giving us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So in order for you and I uh, to know what we should do and the best way of making decisions, how do we make our way through the fog, there are four crucial questions that you need to ask yourself when you are making decisions. These are four crucial, crucial questions that Solomon failed to ask. And this, this is the, remember, this is his memoir. This is, he's looking back over his life, and he's saying, you know what? I've made some good decisions, but I made some very bad decisions. And I can assure you, in the, in the process of making his unwise bad decisions, he probably did not ask himself these questions, or maybe he did and just discounted the answer to the question when making the decision. We don't want to do that, right? We want to make the best decisions that we possibly can. So here's the very first one, and it's really essential. The question is, am I really being honest with myself about this decision I'm about to make? Am I really, and the key word there is really, am I really being honest with myself? I don't know if you're aware of it or not or willing to admit it, but you have deceived yourself into more bad decisions than anyone else. Right? You've talked yourself into more bad decisions because you refuse to be honest with yourself as to why you are actually about to do what it is you wanted to do. Granted, there may be outside pressures, other voices, people promising you things, but in the end, you decided. Have you ever lied to yourself? You know you have, right? And what do we do when we lie to ourselves? Immediately in our heads, we, just, we justify the lie. Who do we justify the lie to? Ourselves, right? I knew I shouldn't have done this. I knew this wasn't right. I knew, I knew better, but I went ahead and did it anyway. I made the decision. I went ahead and went for it. Be honest with yourself is a key, being honest with yourself is a key ingredient to making wise decisions. Listen, decisions are made in very emotionally charged environments, your feelings are always involved. Your feelings are always engaged. And if you're always letting your feelings be in the driver's seat of your life, you will deceive yourself over and over again because you're, in essence, your will is giving into your emotions, even though there is something, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there is something inside of you that's saying, eh, that's probably not the best decision to make. It's probably not the best thing to do, not the best place to go. So, um, for example, if I walk into a store and I see an item on the shelf, and uh, all of a sudden, man, my emotions lock in. You know, I'm, I'm the emo infomercial junkie anyways. Let's say I'm watching the infomercial and there's something out there. I don't, really, don't even really need it. But um, my emotions kick in. I said, man, that is a way cool, cool gadget. I got to have one of those. Now, notice my transition. I have to have this. I don't have to have it, 
but my emotions are telling me I really got to have this. And so when my emotions kick in, the question is, will I pause long enough to be honest with myself? Do I really have to have this? Do I really need this? Or is just just another ploy? And let's say, for example, I purchase it. I order it. It comes in. I open up the box. And then all of a sudden, I feel guilty. It's like, I probably, yes, we call buyer's remorse. I I probably shouldn't have bought this. I I really can't justify this. I really didn't need this. And and this this is how this process filters through our mind and our emotions when we are making decisions. Do you know that every addiction is justified by some, something inside of your head? Every addiction starts or sits at the tail end of a series of decisions that were made and fueled by your emotions. And heading into that, you weren't really being honest with yourself about that. And nothing changes until we are brutally honest with ourselves and looking at the person in the mirror who is us. So notice what Solomon says and why he warns us of this. Verse 1 of chapter 10. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What the heck is he talking about, dead flies and perfume? Well, here's what I can tell you. There is a difference between um, going into an apartment where girls live in college as opposed to where guys live. All right, so when my daughter started at University of Cincinnati, the first year they had to be in a dorm. Second year they were able to live outside of off campus, and so she and two other of her friends decided to, to get an apartment, and so they did. It was off campus, not far from campus, and they'd taken this section of the town. It used to be really where all the motorcycle gangs hang, hung out back in the uh, uh, 60s and 70s, and so they took all these old houses and transformed them into apartments. So my daughter and her two friends were renting an apartment for that year of college, and four dudes had lived there for four years. Okay, so we were assured that, you know, by the, the manager of the apartments that it would all be cleaned up, ready to go. So we are, we've loaded up all of Marissa's stuff, and we're heading to Cincinnati, and we stop to eat. And, and my daughter looks at me, she says, Dad, uh, I just want you to know that there's not very many stairs in there. It's like, like two steps. All right, great. Uh, but what she didn't tell me was that that was two steps to the landing, into the landing, and you turn, and there's like 50 steps up this way, and then there's like another level on top of that. But I need to say, we get there, we, the air conditioning's not working, this is in like August, and it's 90 degrees outside, these dudes had, nobody had cleaned anything, nothing, and there was stuff in that place that, uh, that would make your skin crawl, and it, God forbid you open up the refrigerator because the smell would just like knock you down. So, you know, Marla runs out, she gets cleaning stuff. We start cleaning and trying to make it, you know, at least presentable where we can get her moved in and her other two friends are coming the next day. And now the, the manager of the apartment comes at that time and he says, well, I thought they'd clean this place. How about I pay you guys to clean it? Not on your life, buddy. You get somebody in here and get them in here now to get this place cleaned up. And, of course, the next day, he did send somebody to clean up and got the air conditioning fixed. So this is kind of what Solomon is saying. Listen, uh, it only takes a little bit of something to, like, uh, permeate the environment around you. Many of you, maybe you, you cooked chicken the night before and you took chicken parts and threw them into the trash can. Maybe that trash can sat for about three days. You open up the, the, the lid and, like, the aroma, like, permeates the entire environment of your kitchen and house with a very foul smell. And so there are certain things in our lives that stink up our whole lives. And it, what Solomon is saying is, listen, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Little decisions have a cumulative value that can end up absolutely stinking up your whole life down the road. Do not discount little decisions. Do not discount major decisions. When you are making decisions, you need to Ask yourself the question, am I really being honest about this? This is how sin operates. It smells appealing at first, and then after a series of bad decisions, Satan snares you, and the fallout is enormous. Example, 
King David. It was just a small thing. Watch this. When he saw a woman bathing on the housetop across from his palace, here's what he told his servants. Go get that woman and bring her to me. I just want to talk. Yeah, well, the talking led to an affair, which led to the conception of a, a baby. And then when David is, comes to the realization of what this means as the king over Israel, he has her husband put on the front lines and put to death, which is the essence of really murder. And then he conceals and covers up the act that had taken place for an entire year until God sends a man named Nathan who confronts David with what he has done. What seemingly was such a small decision, the small fly in the perfume stunk up David's life. And watch this. Not only did this action affect David's life, but it affect his future life with his kids. Because the, what, what happened there got passed down to some of his children, and they began acting just like good old dad was acting in his life. And so here's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, how deceptive are our hearts. They are deceitful. They are deceptive. And therefore, we have, to, we have to account for that. A series of small decisions that you have lied to yourself about can end up bringing you down. I put it this way. A false premise will result in a faulty decision. You, you can't make the best decision for you until you are honest with yourself. There is an adjective that we use to describe people who refuse to get honest with themselves. It's called irresponsible. Somehow, someway, we have convinced ourselves that we are indestructible. And notice verse 2 of chapter 10. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, the heart of the fool to the left. Well, in that day and time, the right hand in the scripture uh, was a place of strength. It was a place of skill. The left hand was seen as a place of weakness and where you were unskilled. And yet we have the capacity to convince ourselves of the opposite. David was a smart guy. He was in, incredibly talented as a leader, as a musician, as a poet. I mean, but he, he compensated and compromised. And as a result of that, it damaged his life and his character. Verse 3 says, even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. Why would we do that? Why would we do what David had, has done? Why would, we, why would we make a decision that we know could result in the compromising of our character and have such tremendous fallout? Here's why, and this is what he says in verse 3. Because somehow the heart is so deceitful, we convince ourselves that we're indestructible. Listen, if you drive down 270 and you see somebody walking down the middle of 270, the opposite way of, the, of traffic, what would you say? That, that person's stupid. Right, they, they think they're invincible. I don't know what's going on. That's a madman. Right? And so this is what Solomon is saying is we have to, be, we have to take control. We have to, we have to um, be responsible as to why we're choosing to do what we're deciding to do. So you should ask yourself some questions. Am I really being honest with myself? Am I really being honest as to why I'm doing this? Am I really being honest with myself or do I just keep making excuses for what I'm doing or what I've done or what I think I'm about to do, right? Am I really being honest with myself in this decision? And the next decision you ask yourself that question, you need to ask it out loud because there's a, there's a vast difference between thinking something in your head and saying it out loud to where you can hear it. Why am I doing this really? Why do I really want to make this next purchase off my infomercial? Why do I really want to, and you need to fill in the blank or whatever it is, however you phrase that question. What if David had said to himself out loud, why am I really asking for Bathsheba to be brought over here? Maybe that would have struck his conscience enough to say, not a good idea, probably an unwise decision. This will probably not turn out well. And so we have to stop and ask, because otherwise we are the best salesmen to talk ourselves into dumb purchases, um, 
unhealthy relationships. Well, I know I shouldn't marry him, but I'll, I'll change him. He'll change after we get married. I'll change him. No, it, he won't. All right. Whatever you're getting before marriage is what you're getting after marriage. Now, the Lord may change his heart or her heart. The Lord may change the circumstance and work in them and, you know, crafting them more to the image of Christ. That may be fine and well, but that may take years. So you're talking yourself into something, even destructive habits. And part of that self-deception is the word, I, words, I really need this. Do you really? Stop deceiving yourself. Be honest. Honesty is the key because it begins to sift through our emotions. Number two, here's the second question. And we've talked about this before in previous messages, but I want to just reemphasize it briefly. What story do I want to tell? When When my life is said and done, what story do I want to tell? What stories do I want told about me? Every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your story. Why? Because every decision you make has an outcome, a consequence, or a result. And we rarely think in terms of how this is going to affect my story in the future. We only think about how this is going to affect me in the here and now. Remember, every decision that you've probably ever made that you had great regret over always has residual effects. It's never just contained to that one moment, that one time, or to that one space. It has residual effects on everybody around you. And so write a story you one day want to tell. And if this, there's a lot of people I could go to in the Bible concerning this, but I always think about Joseph. You recall that Joseph, you know, uh, God had given them this, this dream, this passion of what was going to happen for him out in the future, and he told his brothers about it, he told his dad about it, and his brothers got mad because he was the favorite son anyways, so they threw him in a sister and they wanted to kill him, but the oldest brother said, no, we can't kill him, so they sold him off to a caravan that was going to Egypt, and he's, he's drugged, uh, you know, off into captivity, into slavery, and, and then he ends up in Potiphar's household, and he's kind of overseeing the household. The Lord had favor on him there. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He, he, he just, uh, I'm not doing this. And he's thrown into prison. He's in prison for a number of years. So for 13 years of his life, it's just like from one bad dream to the next. Right? So at the end of thir- that 13-year time, finally, he gets a, a showing in front of Pharaoh because it's found out that he can interpret dreams, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream about seven years. There's going to be plenty, you know, just like an overabundance of crops followed by seven years of famine. And so Sarah puts it, <laughs> Sarah, Pharaoh puts him in charge over that whole uh, conglomeration of, hey, let's store up, you know, during the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine come, we have enough food to, to last us through that, that period of time. And so uh, sure enough, it all comes to pass. And Joseph is, you know, the, the famine has hit. And now all of a sudden his brothers are sent by his dad who they told that Joseph was killed, and they have to come before Joseph and ask him for grain for their family, and they do not recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian, and, but Joseph recognizes his brothers. Now, Joseph at that moment in time had a decision to make. He could have, listen, he could have taken his brothers, had them killed and buried, and no one would have known the difference. No one would have ever said a thing. But all throughout his story, He was always thinking about that. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell when Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce me? Because had he made the decision to give in to that, he would have been telling a whole different story than what what we read about him now. Had he given in to a lot of things, we would be reading a lot different story about Joseph than we're reading out. And so he chose to forgive his brothers. He reveals himself to his brothers and said, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good, for the saving of many. And obviously his father and his brothers and the the whole line of Israel is saved because God has put Joseph in a place and a position by which that can happen. And so he maintained his love for the Lord. He maintained his integrity for the Lord. And therefore, Joseph's story is a story that we love to tell, right? It's it's a story that we want to emulate in our own lives. And notice in chapter 10 and verse 4, if a ruler's 
anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. And what he's saying is if somebody offends you, the reaction is not to defend yourself. The action is not to defend your reputation. I mean, this is the way it was for, for Joseph. He just lived with integrity and love for Jesus and for the Lord God who, who created him. And there was a calmness that was inside of him. And he just kind of like, he just kind of let it rest. Like things just like weren't like just frazzling him because he was keeping his integrity with the Lord. Now, some of us live in perpetual offense. That is, we constantly think that family and friends and coworkers like are always talking about you and they're always, you know, saying things behind your back. And because Jesus warned us in this world that we will be deeply offended by people. And I'm just, I'm just pulling out an illustration to make the point in what story do you want to tell? And so I know a lot of believers who, who walk around with this spirit of offense, and Jesus warned about that in Luke chapter 17. And, and when you, you get like that, and then your mind starts kicking in, and like you're constantly, you know, like these scenarios are coming up in your mind, and you're having these conversations that really never happened and haven't happened. And so you just think everybody's thinking about you, and everybody is, is talking about you. Can I, can I assure you? People don't think about you nearly as much as you think they do, okay? So, but if I have a spirit of offense and I carry this in me and this negative emotion all the time, then, you know, if the, the ruler's anger rises against you, right, you, you leave your post, like you leave the calmness behind and you give into the offense. In fact, in Jesus, Luke 17, 1 says, when you, you will be offended, the, the word that he uses there is the word scandalon, which means to bait a trap. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. What Solomon is getting at is that you have an enemy who baits your trap. He wants you to walk and live with a spirit of offense because when you walk with a spirit of offense, you can't walk in rest. You can't walk in calmness. You can't walk in peace. And the moment somebody triggers that, all of a sudden you take the bait of the evil one and you jump in that trap and he snares you in that spirit of offense and that spirit of offense rises up and becomes bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness that begins to dominate and to control your entire life. And so every time you go and you play the victim and not understanding what the gospel says about you, that you are the beloved in Christ and you get distracted by all that, is that really the story I want to tell at the end of my life? There's all kinds of things that are going to happen to you in a lifetime that's going to hurt you, it's going to offend you, People are going to say things. They're going to slander you. They're going, they're, going, they're going to attack your character. They're going to attack your motives. They're going to attack your moral. I mean, that's just, that's just a part of life. But if I'm carrying this spirit of offense, then my story at the end of my life is going to be very much, very different when I'm, when I'm baited in that trap and I'm taking it and Satan is ensnaring it than it would be if I learn how to just how, how to, to, to live in peace, rest, and the calmness and the assurance of the gospel of Jesus in my life, that my identity is not found in what other people say about me or think about me. My identity is found in Christ. You know, I have children who grew up in the church. As most pastors' children, there are times when people say things about their pastor that are not kind, and they hear these things in the hallway, and and it's hurtful to them. People are saying things about their dad. And this is why a lot of times like uh, pastor's kids have a very difficult time in church when they get to be adults because they've seen this stuff go on. Uh, I always blamed it on that, the fact they hang out with the deacon's kids. That's why they're messed up. But... And so you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter was really struggling with this. And she, she wrote a paper while she was in high school on this topic. And uh, it was very eye-opening when I read it and, and did not realize the, the uh, d degree to which things had hurt her and bothered her. And but listen, I don't want my children, I don't want this, their story to be that, you know, I grew up in church and then I, I, and I grew up to hate the church. 
I want them to grow up and say, I grew up in the church, and I love the church because some of the greatest people I've ever met are in church. Yes, some people are not. You know, they're, they're unkind, and they can be wicked at times. That's not, I want them to have a better story, right? So I want this story for me. I want them for my kids. I want them for my grandchildren um, because it's important. I, I want them to excel and accelerate in their walk with Jesus. Now, here's the third question. Is there a tension... Is there a tension that deserves your attention? Is there something, a tension inside of you that deserves your attention? Now, here's one of the things I know that happens inside your brain when you get drunk. In my old life, I was drunk enough to know what this, these things are, um, not because I, I was a pleasurable thing, but st- your stimulants in- increase your impulsiveness when you're drunk, right? So, um, you, which decreases your inhibition. In other words, <clears throat> when a person is drunk, they will do things that they normally would not do. Like, like, the, 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 like somebody who's really shy, they may get drunk and they're like the loudest person in the party. Oh, you know, they're all over the place. But the second thing that happens is that inside your brain, uh, temporarily in your prefrontal cortex, that part of your brain that enables you to connect the dots or to think rationally also gets subverted. So in layman's term, when we're really, really drunk, we're stupid, right? We do stupid things. We think we're invincible. And when you take teenagers and you give them a vehicle and they're all extremely drunk, what do we think? We think that we're invincible, that we can do all kinds of wild and crazy things, and nothing is really going to happen to us, which obviously is not the truth. So you don't consciously ignore common sense. It's not there to be ignored because it's been switched off. It's been suppressed. And so the next day you're like, I did what? No way. I'd never do anything like that. You got video evidence of that? Now, my point is this. Inebriated people can't pay attention to the cues around them or the internal tension within them because they're drunk. But we who are sober also sometimes, when we're in a decision-making process, shut off the cues around us and the internal voice inside of us that is trying to guide us into making the wisest decision possible. That makes sense? In other words, these are red flag moments. When you're about to make a decision and something inside of you, there's like this angst like, I, I just don't know this is the right thing to do. I'm just not sure this is the wisest thing to do at this moment in time. I mean, you know, when I was in the secular world and I was a, a foreman, I had to hire a lot of people, you know, pipe fitters that were working on the job for me. And Every bad decision I made about a hire, without fail, there was something inside of me at that time that went, <clears throat> I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something here just not right. Just something, I, I don't think I should really pull the trigger here, but maybe uh, I needed workers or maybe, you know, we we're at a point of a job, I, it, it needed to be all hands on deck, and so I felt the pressure from the outside to get a body into the position for, that, posi- for that, um, that job. And almost without exception, I ended up regretting it. So let's say you're about to head into a decision and somebody comes along and says, <laughs> what do you think your wife's going to think about that? And, uh, and, and my immediate response can be, well, it's really none of her business. right?" Or I can say to the messenger, really none of your business what my wife thinks about this. And so what we are doing, we're blowing off something, a messenger that God may have sent to you to get you to stop long enough and say, you know what? Let me put a little tension on that decision you're about to make and you need to pay attention to it because I don't think this is the wise thing to do. Now, it may not be immoral, it may not be sinful, it may not be any of those things, but this just isn't the wisest thing for you to do. And sometimes we discount the information based on the source 
who's giving me the information rather than the merit of the information they're giving me. And so look what it says in verse um, 8 in chapter 10. He says, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the ax is dull and its edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it's charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. And you think, what in the world is all of that about? And so he gives us four scenarios here. All right, here's a guy who um, digs pits for a living. Maybe he's been doing this for 30 years, pretty much same routine. But one day he gets there, he falls in, and, and uh, he dies. Maybe perhaps he dies as a result of a fall. Or maybe uh, there's a guy who's breaking down walls. He reaches his arm in there, and he, and he grabs a snake that bites him. Maybe that's poisonous. Maybe it doesn't kill him, but it certainly you know, can harm him. Greatly. When I was a pipe fitter, uh, one of the things you have to watch all the time, especially in the areas we were in, uh, one area was filled with copperheads. We were finding copperheads all the time. Well, they like to warm up their bodies on the concrete from the sun, and so you have to be very cautious because you may pick up a, a set of blueprints. Here's a copperhead. You, you may go to grab a, a pipe uh, to, to lift it up. There's one inside there. So you had to constantly be on the lookout. So this is kind of what he, he is describing here. What Solomon is simply saying through all these scenarios is this, is that life is hard and unpredictable and no one controls it. You can't control life. You can't control everything that happens, but you do have control over the decisions that you are making. Life is hard. It's unpredictable. You can't control everything. This is the reason why God has given to us the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is that internal angst that can happen within us. We're trying to make a decision, and maybe it's not something that's right or wrong, but better and best. And you want, you want God's best, but you're not really sure which way to go. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who can give us confirmation one way or the other as we're trying to make the wisest decisions possible. Because he talks about a guy who goes out and, you know, chop down trees and he finds out that his ax is dull. Well, what would be the, what would be the wise thing to do? To just keep, ha you know, hammering away at the tree with a dull ax? No. You go home, you sharpen it, <clears throat> and you go back and you resume your job. What he's saying is, don't work harder, work smarter. So what Solomon is saying to us is this, <clears throat> is that if we really want to reach um, the place that God wants us to be at the end of our lives, then you need a target and you need a plan. A target and a plan. What's my target? What's God's target for your life? Well, the Bible spells it out that you would be conformed to the image of Christ, right? So if I say, <clears throat> okay, um, I want, I'm, here I am in my 20s or 30s, that was a long time ago, <clears throat> and uh, I want to be a, a godly husband, I want to be a, a godly father, I, I, whatever it is that I wanted for my life, I don't want to be like the snake charmer who um, forgot to blow his, his horn and charm the snake, and rather he got bit by the snake. I, I don't want Satan biting me that is dis hindering me, possibly destroying me, because I make unwise decisions. So if I have a target, I want to be like Jesus in these areas of my life, and then I got to come up with a plan, and I got to work the plan, right? <clears throat> Godliness does not happen by accident. Godliness doesn't happen because I sit on my couch all day. Godliness happens because I have a target and I have a plan of action, and I actually work the plan. And as you're working the plan, you've got to make decisions. And those decisions, again, begin setting the course of the trajectory of your life, where you're going, and the quality of it. So if I really want these things to happen, then I've got to work smarter, not harder. And so a wise man gets a plan and he works it. That's what he says down in verse 12. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips at the beginning. His words are folly at the end. They are wicked madness. And fool, the fool multiplies words. In other words, here's what a foolish person does. 
You just surround yourself with people who are stuck in the same rut you're stuck in. They don't have anywhere. That, they don't have a target. They don't have a plan. They ain't going anywhere in life. And you just want to stick with them. Solomon says that's a very unwise thing to do. If you really want what God wants for your life, understand his target, understand the plan, and start working the plan. And the best way to do that is you calendar that plan. What am I going to do in order to reach that plan? What am I doing today or this week? All right. If I want to be a godly husband to my wife, what must be on my calendar to make sure that plan happens? Otherwise, it probably won't happen. Other things will take over. Other things will be more pressing. Oh, I, I knew I should. I, yeah, I meant to do that. And, and that can go on for years. So in verse 15, he says, a fool works, fool's work wearies him. He doesn't know his way out of town. In other words, <clears throat> if you don't know where you're going or what you're trying to accomplish, life will exhaust you as opposed to having the plan and working the plan. So here is an example about the angst and working the plan. King David was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel for years before he actually took the throne. King Saul was king. King Saul was jealous of David because of his military might. People began singing songs about David, declaring his victories. Saul became extremely jealous. Saul had sinned against God and was unrepentant about it. And so he's, he spent his time trying to take the life of David until finally David flees the kingdom. He takes some other men with him. <clears throat> They're on the run from Saul. He's after David, hunting him down. David and his men are in a cave, and they're in the back of the cave. Saul has to go potty, and he goes inside the cave. His men are outside. He's inside. David's men see that Saul is there. He's in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position, and David's men say to him, hey, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad. And David, this is your chance. Obviously, God has delivered David into your hands. This is your moment in time to take his life. And so David said, you know what? That's right. He takes his knife. He starts making his way towards King Saul. And as he is doing so, there is an internal tension that happens inside of him that draws his attention to the fact this is not the right thing to do. And so David, rather than taking Saul's life, he cuts off a part of his robe and he goes back to his men and his men are like, what are you doing? You could have taken him out. We could have gotten out of this cave. We, could have, we no longer have to be on the run. This was your opportunity, David. But here's what David said to his men. He says, it is not my place. It's not my place to put matters into my own hands. I will not replace what God has put into place. And so David listened to that moment of hesitation, that angst within him that says, this is not the right thing to do. And of course, if you know the end of the story, later on Saul gets killed in battle anyways. And one of the reasons we ignore tension that deserves our attention is because, watch this, it's because we believe we can predict the outcome. Some of my greatest regrets, I ignored the tension because I thought I could control the outcome of the decision I was making. Bad decision. Unwise move. So if you're about to make a decision, you want God's best path that leads to the best destination, you must be keenly aware is that God may speak to you, build a tension inside of you through his Holy Spirit, through your conscience, or he may use messengers around you to say, hey, stop, pause, consider before you make the decision and move forward. Here's the last question. What is the wise thing to do? <clears throat> If you're committed to walking with God and serving him, uh, God obviously wants you to make the best decisions. But here's our natural inclination is that we want to walk as close to the line as possible, right? Maybe not so much as you get older as an adult, but certainly as a teenager, it was always like, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning, right? 
How, how, how close can I walk that line? <clears throat> how long can I neglect my family, my finances, my health without actually feeling its effects? And so De, uh, <clears throat> King, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.16 this, be very careful then how you live, not as, un, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, he says, don't be careless in how you live. In other words, the grid through which you evaluate every invitation, every opportunity should be, is this wise or is this unwise? Why does he make that statement? Because he said, the days are evil. Again, you and I are immersed in a culture that is not neutral about things, right? And so our emotions get involved and... <clears throat> Our culture says, here's the way to satisfy your appetites, so, which can never be fully and finally satisfied. And so Satan takes that and he, he tempts us, right? For example, it's just a click away. Hey, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling deprived, you're not getting along with your wife. How about just pick up your computer, get on that website, I got some things for you to look at. That one unwise decision can be like a fly in the perfume that leads you down a pathway that will maybe will ruin and wreck not only your life, but your family's life because you got addicted to pornography. This is what Paul's warning. In verse 17, he says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Why doesn't he say discover or obey the Lord's will? He says instead to understand the Lord's will. Here's why. What, what David or, uh, Paul is doing is kind of like pulling your, you up face-to-face -face grammatically with him, and he's simply saying as like, stop playing games, stop pretending, stop rationalizing, face up to what you know you ought to do, ask the question, embrace the answer. And so here's the question. The best question ever, and really the remainder of chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes is kind of flushing this out. We don't have time for that. So here's the question. In light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experiences, you know what your past experiences are. You know what your past mistakes have been. You know your proclivity to certain sins and issues in your life. And therefore, in, in light of that, is what you're about to do something wise? I'll give you an example, a quick example. Let's say in the past, you've had a lot of problems handling credit cards, right? You, you, you get a credit card, you know, your emotions kick in, you're out there charging that thing up, not thinking about the payments that you're gonna have to make. It's very easy to get into debt, very hard to get out of it. And so you just charge it, you max it out. You've had this problem before and it's caused great difficulty in your life, your marriage, whatever. And so in light of your past experience, now here you are in the present, you got a credit card in hand, you're looking at an item, your emotions have kicked in. I really, remember what the key phrase is, I really need this. Do you really? Am I really being honest with myself about this? What story do I want to tell that I started down this road again and I charged up, maxed out my credit cards again and I've got to tell my spouse how I, and why I've done that? Is there a tension inside of me that's saying you probably should not do this? In light of my past experiences, would it really be wise for me to plunk that credit card down? And in light of my present circumstances, whatever your present circumstances might be, for example, uh, you may be in a state of mind and emotions that are unresolved. There's a lot of unresolved anger and hurt. Maybe you got divorced. And there's a lot of un unresolved issues inside of you. And so what happens to a lot of people is they get divorced and because they still want, you know, they're young, they're lonely, they're desiring companionship, the ink doesn't even get dry on their divorce papers and they're already jumping into another relationship. Is that wrong? Not necessarily. The question is, is it wise? Absolutely not. 
You've not figured yourself out yet. You haven't even looked at yourself in the mirror honestly and said to yourself, what part of the, of, was I responsible in this breakup? Stop blaming it all on your spouse. You had some stuff to do with it also. I counsel a couple of You ought to give it at least a year to sort yourself out, get yourself emotionally healthy before you jump into another relationship. Not because it's wrong, but because it's wise. So you need to consider that and your future hopes and dreams. What's your target? What's your plan? What's your preferred future? What is the wise thing? All of us have watched families and friends undermine their financial dreams sabotage relationships because of alcohol abuse, seen infidelity come into the relationship and absolutely destroy the family. We've all seen this. Maybe it's happened to you. I don't know. But all I'm, I'm saying is in this message, what Solomon is trying to get us to sit down and calculate is that we believe that our greatest regrets could have been avoided had we just paused long enough to ask ourselves honestly, these four questions. Am I really being honest with myself as to why I'm about to do what I'm doing? Is there something inside of me that just, there's a tension? There, what story do I want to tell? In a light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, is this really the wise thing to do? What God wants us to do is to live our lives, and it's my prayer that we make better decisions so that we ultimately live with fewer regrets. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we acknowledge before you this morning that, God, we just couldn't do this without your word to guide us, without your Holy Spirit to enable us to do what is right rather than what we necessarily feel. Jesus, we thank you that, that you died for us, that you, through our relationship, justified us before God. You brought us into this perfected state of being uh, and indwelt us with your Holy Spirit to enable us to do, Father, what it is that is a part of your will and a part of your plan and purposes. God, we pray every single week that your will will be done here on earth in our lives as it is in heaven, as we yield ourselves, Father, to the wisdom that you have given to us in your word. We thank you, Father, that the Bible is so, so honest that even people like Solomon, who made incredible bad decisions, Lord, that we have this written for us to know that we're not alone in our own bad decisions, but also, Father, that we can learn from somebody else's mistakes so that we're not constantly making them over and over again in our own lives. So, Lord, we thank you that you are our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, who longs to be in community with us and who desires more than anything that our feet might be set on the best paths that lead to the best destinations. Thank you for your caring love and concern over us. And I pray, O oh God, that in the days ahead that we would make the wisest decisions that we can possibly make. In Jesus' name, amen.